We're continuing our study of Jonah today. Um, If you have a Bible, uh, turn to Jonah 4, whether you're at home or here. Jonah chapter 4, as we uh, continue uh, studying this short little book that uh, really packs a, a huge punch. give you a little heads up uh, before we get in uh, to the text. Jim just read the the text, how Jonah is very angry with God uh, because because of what's happened in Jonah 3. In Jonah chapter 3, God gives Jonah a second chance to go to Nineveh and preach to the city that he originally didn't want to preach to. Jonah now preaches this very simple message, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the entire city comes to faith in God alone. From the palace to the poorest person, God's word radically changes the entire entire city. This is the greatest, possibly the greatest preaching effort ever. This is probably the greatest a prophet could ever hope for. That every single person in the city that you go preach to has now come to the Lord. And Jonah, the prophet of God, is outraged. Look at verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. He's ticked off. He's appalled that God would show mercy to the Ninevites. Because Jonah still doesn't really believe that the Ninevites have deserved God's mercy. And yet that's what mercy is, something that is undeserved. He's angry that God has forgiven these people who deserve God's judgment. He's forgotten the principle, we read it earlier today, that God's kindness, God's mercy is meant to lead us to repentance. He wants Nineveh wiped out and he's appalled at what has happened. And what's fascinating about this is that God, that Jonah, the prophet of God, uses God's word against God, right? Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? In other words, this is why I didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. I knew you might do something like this. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are. And then he says, a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. This is essentially a paraphrase of Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. He's taking God's word, throwing it back to God and said, I knew you would do this. And in some sense, he's charging God and he's basically undermining the character of God using the word of God. Now, we need to do two things this morning as we look into this text. The first is we need to ask, we need to ask and answer two questions. The first question we're going to see is, what does it look like when someone has two rival gods battling it out in your heart? What does it look like to have two rival gods, two uh, gods in your heart, so to speak, that are, that are sort of battling it out in your heart? Because this is what appears is happening to Jonah. Jonah's angry at God. He's using God's word against God. He doesn't understand why God would show his mercy to undeserving people. And then what is, what is unbelievable now, verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, Jonah says, 
please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He doesn't want to live. He doesn't have a purpose anymore. He would rather die. He is so undone by, by what God has done, he, he, he can't even function. He doesn't want to go on. He has no passion. He has no purpose. He said, I'd, I'd rather die. Take my life, God. You sort of have to ask yourself, what in the world is going on in Jonah's heart? And what I think we see here is what it looks like to have a divided heart. There's two rival gods that are warring in, in Jonah's heart, battling it out for his affections. I'm going to read a verse from 1 John to kind of explain to you what does it look like to have a divided heart? What is a divided heart? To help us understand what Jonah is dealing with and eventually what we deal with in our own divided hearts. In 1 John 3, uh, John the Apostle um, writes these words. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because he shall see him as he is. The Apostle John is telling the believers there that that look at the love that God has for you. Look at the fact that you're a child of God. Look at the fact that God loves you and he's giving you an identity and a purpose and a future. And then at the very end, verse 3, says, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. And that word purify can certainly mean to, to kind of help impure thoughts and impure actions out of your life, certainly. But I think what, what John is driving at in this verse, the word means to purify your heart means to make sure that your heart is not divided between God and something else. Purify your heart means to have a single-minded heart, not a double-minded heart, not a divided heart. James, well, in James, in, in, in chapter 4, verse 8, I won't turn there, but you can jot that down and look at it, talks about the fact of purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's a sense in which what it means to purify your heart is to make sure that your heart is more consistently and more comprehensively uh, uh, focused and, and oriented around God plus nothing else. Where God becomes the center of your joy, peace, satisfaction, hope, dreams, identity. And what you see happening to Jonah is because his heart is divided, because there are two rival gods battling out into his heart, he has become an unstable person. Just look back at Jonah 1. God told him to go to to Nineveh and preach. And and Jonah doesn't want to do that. Why? Because he has a rival God in his heart, a God of self-righteousness, a God who says, I deserve God's mercy, Jonah thinks. The nation of Israel deserves God's mercy. But the Ninevites, who are the enemy of Israel, they don't deserve God's mercy. I'm not going to go there. I'm going exactly the opposite way to Tarshish. And what does God have to do? He sends a storm. He sends a fish. And in the fish, Jonah kindly gets it. Right? Right? It takes three days in the fish. And he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. His heart is less divided. It's, it's more single-minded. But then he goes and preaches. He finally does what God wants. The people repent. It's the greatest sermon series ever preached. And Jonah is now ticked off. Why? Because there's a rival God in Jonah's heart. 
And sometimes his heart is oriented around the true God. And sometimes his heart is wrapped up with something else, a false God, a distorted view of God. He's divided in terms of his heart's allegiances. When he doesn't want God to give mercy to Nineveh, he's forgotten that God is the true God, is the God of mercy. Jonah's received that mercy. The nation of Israel has received that mercy. But because Jonah now has a distorted God, a distorted view of God that's running around in his heart and mind, he thinks Nineveh does not deserve God's love and mercy. And in fact, because Nineveh is an enemy of my nation, God's people... I want them destroyed. In other words, Jonah has a, a rival God. It's a, it's a nationalistic God. It, it's, it's so much, it's, an, it's, a, it's a kind of a God of bigotry and self-righteousness. They don't deserve it. So God, wipe them out. And meanwhile, the true God is saying, I showed mercy to you, Jonah. I showed mercy to Israel. And my whole being is about showing mercy to everyone, all the undeserving, because everyone is undeserving. Now, here's the ultimate picture of the instability that occurs in the life of a believer even, a prophet of God even, when you have a divided heart and you're not quite sure which God at which hour of the day you're going to serve. Think about this when Jonah is talking to God himself. End of verse 2. I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You relent from disaster. Therefore, now, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. When Jonah is saying to God, the true God, I don't want to live anymore. Jonah's basically saying, I have no hope. I have no joy. I have no peace. I have no purpose for living. And he's telling the only being that can give Jonah that purpose, joy, security. And what he's saying is to the only being that can give Jonah a purpose for living, because you haven't made my rival God, my rival God of self-righteousness, the rival God in my mind that, that, that doesn't give mercy to the undeserving. He only gives mercy to me and my people. Because Jonah is, is, has got this rival God, this false conception of God running around in his heart and mind. He's telling the only God who can give him an identity and give him a purpose because you, God, haven't made my false God work. I don't have a reason to live. Meanwhile, he's talking to the only one who can give you a reason to get out of bed and live. Now, that's insane. That's the insanity of a divided heart. Now, lest we want to get angry at Jonah, or lest we want to judge Jonah, what about ourselves? Have you ever had a morning like Jonah, where you didn't really want to get out of bed? Have you ever had a moment where you were so filled with angst about life that you just didn't feel like you had a purpose, you didn't have any passion, you didn't have any desire to really to, 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 to move forward? Have you ever had that moment? You, certainly you have if you're over 30, right? The only reason you've never had angst, you're too young. It'll come. Let me talk about a couple of rival God situations that probably reside in your heart, certainly have resided in mine. 
been a believer since I was six, seven years old, right? I know the Lord. I knew I was a sinner. Trusted him, trying to follow him. I remember after seminary, I was graduating from seminary this May. I was working a job as a courier. I was a bike courier delivering packages downtown Dallas. I was making six forty-five an hour. Woo. To be honest, we just had our daughter Katie, and, and the reality is we were losing money every month, okay? We had some money saved up, but Denise wasn't working. She was home with Katie. We were losing money every month, and so I kind of needed to get a job that paid more than six bucks an hour, okay? So I remember I interviewed at this for this youth pastor position. It's a really nice church in Texas, in Denton, Texas. Um, and I, it was just a great opportunity. And I had interviewed with all every passion in my being. And I really thought I had a chance to get this job. I really did. In fact, I was sure they were going to call me in a couple of days. And I had my heart set on this. And what I didn't realize is that while I was asking God to provide for me, certainly, there was another part of me that says, I've got to get this job. I've got to support my family. This job, I need this job. I must have this job or we're going bankrupt. I got a daughter, I got a wife, I got to provide. And I, I really thought I had a chance to get the job. And I remember about four days in waiting for the call. I was telling my wife, you know, I really need this job. I really need this job. And my wife looked at me and says, you're not going to get the job. I was like, well, how do you know? She goes, I was there at your interview. You were awful. You weren't good. You were nervous. You, and I, and I, I was stunned. And sure enough, they called me a couple of days later and said, uh, we're, we're going to go in a different direction. And they actually said, you came across as very nervous, very insecure. And I was devastated. And the next morning, I could hardly get out of bed. Why couldn't I get out of bed? Because my trust in God, yes, I was trusting God, but I was trusting God to get my security from a job offer. And because I was divided in my heart, am I trusting God or am I trusting my ability to get the job? I found myself in a, in a situation of existential angst because I had a divided heart. I was actually almost demanding that God make this job offer work. And when he didn't do that, I couldn't function. I think you know what you've all been there. You know what that looks like. Parents, you've had this with your children, I'm sure. I have had three kids. One of my children, I really wanted him to go to a great school. I didn't care about this before I moved to Princeton, but you all ruined me. Okay? Some of you are probably at home ruined me. And so I was thinking, man, I want to, she needs to get in a great school. And so we were homeschooling her and she was taking cl classes at, our, at the community college. And we were, I was all excited. She was doing well. And even though she was very young, she was acing these college classes. Of course, I was really excited about that because she got college credit and high school credit. We're going to save money. She's only had to go to school for three years. It was all good. So one December, late in the semester, we got an email from the teacher that said, um, I, I normally wouldn't do this, but since... She, your student is so young, uh, your child's going to fail the class. They're not turning in work. And I remember reading this email and I, I just got sick to my stomach. I just said, I don't know, it's over. She's not going to get into a good school. It's over. It's, we're done for. 
And I remember we were at a wedding that the night, the, the, the day I found out about this. I could hardly pay attention to our friend's wedding at all. I was so undone by this. I was so depressed by this. I was so listless because in my mind, trusting the God of the universe was not the only God in my heart. The God of my child's academic success was looming large in my heart. And to add insult to injury, I left the wedding the wedding reception and went in and there was some televisions and the Dallas Cowboys choked out a game when they could have been in the playoffs, missed the playoffs. So my third God didn't work either. Why was I so undone? Why was I so, uh, the loss of energy, the loss of passion, why? Because there were two gods battling out in my heart. The true God, to trust God and find joy in him and find purpose and direction in him plus nothing else or the God of my child's academic success. Oh, it happens in other ways too. Some of you I know, um, some of you listening and some of you here this morning, you've had a loved one who's had, had an addiction problem. And in order to deal with that, you've gone to a support group. It's called Al-Anon. It's where friends and family members who have an, an, an addict, maybe your father or mother's an addict, or maybe one of your children is struggling with it, or maybe one of your friends are struggling with this, and you're trying to deal with it, you go to the support group. If you've ever sat in an Al-Anon group, what, what you'll find is that the people in that group, some of them have a deep confidence in God, a deep confidence in Christ, but they have another God in their heart, the God of their friend's sobriety. In other words, I got to get my, my friend or my family member or my father or my mother or my, my sister or brother or my child. has got to get out of addiction. And if that doesn't happen, I can't function. Two rival gods. In fact, it's often, if you've ever been in these support groups, you'll find that the people in Al-Anon who make sobriety the goal of their life, to make sobriety their functional god, so to speak, end up crazier than the person in addiction. This is the story of our life. I suspect all of you this morning, whether you're at home or whether you're here in person, you've got some rival gods running around in your heart. And one minute you're trusting the God of the Bible, the true God. One minute you're, you're saying, God, you're everything to me. You're my purpose. You're the hope of my life plus nothing else. But then there's another part of you that says, you're great, God. You're good, but I got to have this other thing work out. In fact, I kind of need you to make this other thing work out or I can't have peace, joy, happiness, etc. And when that happens, you become unstable. Double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And some of you can praise God one minute. And 17 minutes later, you can be undone. Because there are two gods battling for your affections, battling for your allegiance in your heart. You, you, you don't have an undivided heart. That's the picture of what it looks like to have... A divided heart. So our second question as we wrap up is, how do we become more single-minded in our hearts? How do we, 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 we deal with this, these rival gods in our hearts? How do we, 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 we live our lives in such a way that we have a more single-minded focus and hopes and dreams all wrapped up in this true God? And I'm going to give you three 
uh, suggestions that really come out of this text. And the first is this. Notice God's question in verse 4. After Jonah has complained about God, after Jonah misuses scripture and charges God with a character flaw because he was merciful to the Ninevites. In verse 4, the Lord said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Now, I'll be honest. I know some of you a little bit. I think if you were God, that's not what you would have said to Jonah. If you're honest. If you were God and had told this prophet to go and he disobeys from the very beginning, then you have to send a storm, jeopardize everybody in the Mediterranean Sea, right? Then you, then, then you deal with him. You, you, you provide a fish and you deal with him. He finally gets it. You finally, he finally gets You give him a second chance to go to, to Nineveh. He finally preaches. You bring forth a revival through the preaching of Jonah's message. And then the prophet gets mad at you and quotes the scripture and tries to condemn you for misusing scripture as a weapon against you. I think a lot of you, if you were God, I know what you would do. Jonah would be fired. You're done. It's over. I'm going to get another prophet in here. Some of you, you law and order types, <laughs> what was going to happen in Nineveh would probably happen to the prophet, right? <laughs> what, is, what does God do? Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? He asks him a question. He gently dialogues with him. I mean, this is the amazing thing about, about God. We have these rival gods going on in our hearts. Sometimes we're really into God completely. God plus nothing. I get it. The next minute it's, okay, God, you're great, but I need this over here because I got another God going on in my heart. And God in his grace simply looks at Jonah after all of Jonah's nonsense and mess and simply asks him a question. Do you do well to be angry? And I think what God is really trying to say to Jonah is, am I not enough for you, Jonah? I think what he's saying is, Jonah, you've got me. You've got me, the source of all goodness. You've got me. I poured out my mercy on you. You've got me. I poured out my mercy on Israel. You've got me. My desire is to redeem the world. And so I poured mercy out on Nineveh. But you've got me, Jonah. I'm your purpose. I'm the reason you ought to get up in the morning. You've got me. Why are you angry? Because your rival God hasn't come through when you have me. I've given all of myself to you. Now, find your joy, your satisfaction in me plus nothing. It's almost like an appeal. I think for some of us, we need to listen to sort of the quiet voice of God's questioning of our hearts. We need to maybe take some time out and be quiet so that we can hear that voice. We need to take time out and read God's word because oftentimes that voice comes through God's word and be reminded that in the true God that ought to be our functional Lord and Savior, We have everything that we need for peace and security and purpose and joy and hope. All of our dreams put in him plus nothing else brings tremendous satisfaction. But when we take the the only being that can provide all these things that we want and we set up in our hearts some other pursuit or some other person or some other false God or some distorted picture of God in our hearts and try to worship both, 
we become unstable, double-minded, and in the end, there will be no satisfaction, there will be no peace, there will be no joy, there will be no purpose. Because that rival God or that rival misconception of God that runs around in your head and your heart can never do what the true God can do. Do you well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? That's the first uh, sort of a step to, to, to try to help your heart become more single-minded. There's another interesting uh, part of this, this whole book. And so the second thing I would say, is I'm, I'm going to give you a phrase and I'm going to give you a picture. A picture and a phrase to help you understand that there's a process to God dealing with the rival gods that run around in your heart. Notice Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, he doesn't get it. He's got a God in his head who should destroy the Ninevites and should not show mercy to them for sure because they don't deserve it. He's got a distorted view of God. He runs away. He gets a storm and a fish. He finally gets it. Salvation is of the Lord. I get it, God. He finally gets it. Jonah 3, he finally preaches. He kind of gets it. Jonah 4, he's lost it again. The reality is, is what God is going to have to do for you over your life is he's going to have to constantly be working in your heart to reveal the rival gods that are running around in your heart and minds and to peel them off layer by layer over time. It's a process. You need to think about it like an onion. There's your picture. This is the story of my life. I'm rolling along. I find myself like Jonah. I've lost all passion for life. The world is ending because I've got two rival gods. God deals with me and I see it. I see the true God again and I reorient my heart around him. And I'm like, I get it. I've arrived. Spiritually, I'm in a great place. You are my only God. And 17 minutes later, sometimes it's 17 days later, another rival God's in my heart. And God has to peel another onion layer away. And I finally get it. And I think, I got it. I got it. I see God. I see who he is. He's my only hope. He's my only security. And a month later, I've got a rival God and I'm a mess. I'm a double-minded Jonah. You've got to realize that God's going to have to do this to you over and over and over again. And you're not going to get there fully until Jesus comes back or God brings you home. But you're going to have to live with this. The other, that's the picture. The phrase I would say, I like to call myself a recovering idiot. I'm rolling along. I I now have two rival gods in my heart. It's idiotic. It's insane. And I I try to play one off the other. I sort of demand that the true God fix my idol and make that work. And then all of a sudden, God deals with me. And I go, oh, this is crazy. What am I doing? I get myself back into God. And then, you know, it's a week later. And I'm back to the same old rival God, double minded, double hearted. Insanity. And God has to deal with my idiotness all over again. But he does. He's gracious. And I recover from it. And then I go back to it. And I recover from it. That is the way it's going to be for you. It's interesting that sometimes when you think you've arrived, because God has peeled back a rival God in your heart, he will reveal that you have another rival God lurking under that you didn't see before. Don't panic. Don't get frustrated. Don't get discouraged. Let it roll. Lastly, the main way that you deal with this rival God situation 
is you've got to keep the mercy and grace of God in your heads, in your minds. You have got to get your mind on the true God. You've got to make sure that the God you're thinking about, the God you're worshiping, the God you're praying to is the true God of the Bible, not some distortion that you've, you've manufactured, some God after your, own, after your own likeness, so to speak. And in my life, when God begins to peel the onion out of my heart and God begins to help this idiot recover from his idiotness time and time again, What is often the propelling picture of God is when I get the grace and mercy of God clear in my head, when I see directly that God is the one who came out of heaven, put on a human body, lived the life I should have lived, died the death I deserved so that he could give mercy to me legitimately and he could forgive my sins and give me the righteousness of Christ. When I see the beauty of that God of mercy... That God of grace, it breaks the power of the rival gods that lurk in my heart. I can remember very vividly, I was, I was, I was in eighth grade. Um, I was playing uh, baseball for a, a legendary coach. He had won a couple of state championships. I was on the JV team. I was so excited. He was a guy that I, I looked up to, but I feared. We're over at his house and... Uh, uh, as part of our school function, I went to a Christian school and he led us in communion that day. And at that particular time, I had a number of rival gods in my heart. I mean, I, I believed in God, but I, I kind of had some other gods I wanted to, to kind of make work. It was God plus boo do 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 And when this man that I revered, this man that I feared, this man who was a great baseball coach, took the elements of the, of the bread out to represent the body of Jesus Christ and took the cup, which represented his shed blood for us. And he began to talk about what that meant for him. And he started to weep. And he started to say, the only thing that makes any sense in my life is the fact that God died in my place in Jesus Christ. And, and the shed blood that was taken, and he begins to weep. He begins to, 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 to pour out his, sort of his, just his love and his, his thankfulness for God's grace and mercy. And all of a sudden, in my eighth grade heart, I could see the beauty of Christ's love for me in a new way. I saw it. And almost immediately, the rival gods begin to recess out of my heart in a new way. Because I saw the beauty of the grace of God. I saw the true God in all of his beauty, all of his glory, and I was mesmerized by it. And I was able then to look to him plus nothing else for everything in my life. And it reminds me of Romans 12 verse 1. When Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So he says, I appeal to you to look at the mercies of God. I appeal to you to look at the death of Christ. I appeal to you to look at what God, the true God, did for you on that cross. I appeal to you to keep that in your gaze, to let that mesmerize you. And what does he say then? If you keep the mercies of God in view, then what? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. When you see the beauty of God's grace, when you see the true God and all of his grace and mercy for you, for me, that almost automatically propels you to lay down every aspect of your life completely 
in a single-minded devotion to him alone. And that's what Jonah's all about. Because as Jesus says, Jonah is a picture of the greater Jonah, Jesus, who would be that God of grace and mercy on our behalf. I want us to pray. I'm going to lead you in prayer that God will do his work in your heart. He will deliver you from the rival gods that plague your heart and and challenge your allegiance and your affections for. And then we're going to close out with in, in Christ alone. I know for us that are here, we can't sing this song. I'm going to try very hard not to sing. Those of you at home, you can sing. But you think about the words of this song. This is what you have to keep in view if you want to break down the power of the rival gods that bring double-mindedness and instability to your life. So let me pray for us and we'll close out within Christ alone. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, for, for, for all of us, those who are listening at home, those who are in person here this morning, all of us, who follow Jesus Christ know there are days when we we are mesmerized by who you are, Lord, but there are also days in which you are not enough for us functionally. We've got other functional and rival gods ruling around in our hearts and minds. And when we do that, Lord, we become unstable. We bless you one minute, we almost curse you the next. We're mesmerized by you one minute. The next minute we're complaining because you won't make our faults and rival God's work real well. Thank you that you forgive us, Lord, for those idolatries and those misplaced affections. But I pray that you would help us through the power of your word. through the beauty of what you've done for us, for who you are and what you've done, that that vision, that true vision of who you are, we would keep before us and that that would then motivate us to have a heart that is more singularly focused on you plus nothing else. Deliver us from our double-mindedness because of the rival gods that, 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 that battle for our affections and for our love and for our commitments. Help us to realize it's a process and to allow God to continue to peel the onion layers upon layers of idolatries and rival gods that lurk in our midst. Help us to, 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 to let you in your word through your gracious questioning of our hearts to help us see our, 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 our double-mindedness and then pull us back through your grace and mercy to having a single-minded focus on you and that you alone would be our security. You alone would be our purpose. You alone would be our satisfaction. You alone would be our joy. Help us, Lord, as we close out thinking about uh, this great song. She would help us to gaze upon you and then to present our bodies as living sacrifices in Jesus' name. Amen.